0: We're going to uh, turn in our Bibles to First Peter chapter five. Um, actually, be- before we-, we do that, I, I want to just remind us, again, of our purpose as a church. We don't do this enough, and that's my fault. But it's important to remember our purpose as a church. So let's say this together. Our purpose is to make disciples together. Let's say that again, to make disciples together. And you say, well, what does that mean? Well, let me, let me paint a picture for you. Imagine that you are a person living in St. John's County and you're not a follower of Jesus. And you have questions about life. You're starting to bump up against the reality of how hard life is. You see the news and you're filled with anxiety and fear and dread about what is life all about. And and you're lost. You don't know Jesus. You don't understand the scriptures. And you don't know what to do. And you don't know any Christians. But imagine that same person. And, and you have those questions, and, and you have those doubts, you have those fears, but there's a Christian who's been equipped as a follower of Jesus to be able to answer those questions. And they are praying for you, and they come alongside you, and they help you find the answers to the most important questions in life. Imagine the joy that you'll have when you follow Jesus, Because someone has taught you how to find the answers your heart so desperately needs. My desire is that every non-Christian, every lost person in St. John's County would have a Christ follower in their life who could begin to pray for them and begin to help them find the answers to the questions that they have in their hearts There's not enough pastors, there's not enough churches, but there are enough Christians to get the gospel out to this community. That's a picture of what it could mean for us to make disciples together. Now, we've been walking through the book of 1 Peter, so I want to read the first five verses of 1 Peter, and then I'm going to pray, and then we'll study it together. So let's let's read. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow heir, elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain. But with eagerness, nor yet as lording over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will also receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men likewise Be subject subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray. Father, help us as we open your word to see and, and to follow Jesus Christ, the chief shepherd of your church. And Holy Spirit, would you come and would you guide us in all truth that that we might be encouraged and helped in that, we pray, through Jesus. Amen. The painting that you see on the screen is uh, by a man named Richard Westall. It was painted in 1812, but it depicts a story that was originally told by a man named Cicero in the last century before Jesus Christ came. Cicero told the story of Damocles and Dionysius, and it's come into our culture under the story called the Sword of Damocles, and the story goes like this. Damocles was a young leader in the kingdom of um, Dionysius. I have such a hard time remembering that name. I mean, it's such a common name. Uh, Dionysius. So Dionysius was the king, and, and Damocles was a follower of the king, but he was a young man in a hurry. He wanted to be in a position of power, he wanted to be in a position of authority. So he was always pandering to the king, telling him, Oh, king, you're so fortunate, you're so blessed, you're so wealthy, you're so wonderful. And one day, finally, um, Dionysius said, Would you like to know how fortunate I am, how blessed I am, how prosperous I am, how, how wonderful my life is? Oh, yes, King, I would love. Well, come and sit on my throne. And so Damocles sat on the throne of Dionysius and, and he saw all his riches. He saw all his servants. He saw all the good things that he had to eat and to drink. And then he noticed the sword that was hovering over the king's throne, hung by a horse's hair. And he said, King, what is this? And he says, This is what comes with being the king. So you get all the riches, all the privileges, all the stuff, but you also get the sword. And Cicero said the reason he told the story is this. Doesn't Dionysius seem to have made it plenty clear that nothing is happy for him over whom terror always looms? See, leadership is hard. Self-leadership is hard. It's hard to lead yourself. Leadership in the home is hard. It's hard to be a husband. It's hard to be a wife. It's hard to be a parent. Leadership in the marketplace is hard. And leadership in the church is hard. Cicero told the story of Damocles and Dionysius because in his day, there was a crisis of leadership. And we need to hear not the story of Damocles, we need to hear the story of the gospel because today there's a crisis of leadership leadership in the church leadership in the world leadership in the home and even our self-leadership it is so easy for us to forget about jesus and when we forget about jesus we begin to believe things about the nature of leadership and the nature of followership that are just not true. We start to believe that that leadership is about power and nothing could be further from the truth. And, And we begin to believe that followership is about getting what we want having our needs met and that's not true either and what i want us to learn this morning from the book of first peter is that jesus is the chief shepherd of his church and that when we remember who jesus is to us and for us Our self-leadership, our leadership in the home, our leadership in the marketplace, and our leadership in the church, and our followership will be very, very different. Now, when you hear that, that Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, the first question that comes to mind is this. If Jesus is the chief shepherd of the church, his church, then do we even need leaders in the church? So that's the first question we'll answer. Do we even need leaders in the church? If Jesus is the chief shepherd, do we even need leaders? And the answer is yes. I want to tell you more, but the answer is yes. And after we talk about that, what I want to answer is, well, then what are the dangers that leaders and followers face in the church? And how can Jesus and the gospel help us face those dangers? So that's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. And since Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church, do we really need leaders? The answer is yes. Jesus Christ, in Mark 3, 14, we see Jesus begin his chief strategy of leading his church Jesus Christ chose to lead his people through raising up and equipping leaders. How did he do it? Mark 3:14. He and he appointed, he called 12 disciples and he designated them as apostles that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. So Jesus's strategy was To call men to himself that they might be with him and then send them out to preach. And I've never seen anyone summarize the ministry methods of Jesus better than Robert Coleman in his book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. This is the first paragraph. It all started by Jesus calling a few men to follow him. This revealed immediately the direction his evangelistic strategy would take. His concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Remarkable as it may seem, Jesus started to gather these men before he ever organized an evangelistic campaign or even preached a sermon in public. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. And women too. You're sitting there, I know, some of you are saying, men, men, men. But listen, read through the book of Luke. Read through the book of Luke and you will see that Jesus Christ had many followers who were women. And he valued The role of women within his movement, within the disciple-making movement of the church. So when Coleman only uses the phrase men, don't be offended. Jesus, Jesus called and equipped some women who were his disciples also. Now Jesus, through the early church, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 14, we read this about the early church and their implementation of Jesus's strategy. Paul and Barnabas were two leaders of the church and it says in Acts 14:20 that they went away to Derby. And after they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what was the pattern of the early church? Their evangelistic strategy that they had learned from Jesus started by proclaiming the gospel. And as they proclaimed the gospel, people believed on the Lord. And when they believed on the Lord, they didn't leave them there. That was the first step in their following Jesus. But it wasn't the only step. Because when a person believed in the Lord, then they were built up. They were built up in their faith. They were established as followers, disciples. What's a disciple? A disciple is a learner. The Greek word is mathetes. They learned from the leadership of the early church. They learned from Jesus a pattern of living, and they followed Jesus' ways. They became like Jesus. And some within the church were then designated and appointed as elders. Now in verse 23, you see the word elder, and the Greek word elder is the word presbyteros. Sounds very important. What it means is old guy, which when I got started in this work, I wasn't, but now I am. And now I'm becoming, every day, I become a little bit more presbyteros. Every day I look in the mirror and it's more and more true of me that I really am elder material. Now, we are a Presbyterian church. What does that mean? It means that we have leadership that reflects a Presbyterian form of church government, we have elders. We're led by a group of spiritually mature men who follow Jesus and seek to do two things for the church. What are those two things? Well, in 1 Peter 4, we see what they are. 1 Peter 5, we see what they are. The first thing elders do is they shepherd the flock of God. They shepherd the flock of God. They tend the sheep. Now remember, it says the flock. Of God. What is the church? The church is God's people. The church belongs to him. The church has been bought by him. The church doesn't belong to me. The church doesn't belong to the elders. The elders exist to serve, to help, to encourage, to pray for, to lead the flock of God toward what? Places for them to feed. Places for them to be safe places for them to be cared for. So what is the role of an elder? The role of an elder first is to shepherd the flock, always remembering that it's God's flock. And secondly, to exercise oversight. That's the word episkopos, epi, scope, look, scope, epi, over. So to overlook, to oversee, to keep watch over, to provide leadership so that the church is able to express a healthy way, to be three things at the same time. A community. Leaders in the church provide leadership so the church can be healthy as a community, a people joined together in love. Second, as a cause. Whose cause? What cause? The latest cause? The greatest cause? The the cause that's getting the most attention? No. The cause of Christ. The only cause that in the end will ever matter. The cause of getting the name of Jesus to the nations. That's the cause. Not the latest cause or the greatest cause or the most famous cause. But the cause of Christ, that's what leaders try to keep us focused on. And then third, not only a community and a cause, but third, a corporation. You say, a corporation? Well, yeah, it's wise to to make sure that we lead well, to make sure that we're sound financially, we have sound policies and, and things. But is that the first thing we lead with? Now, the first thing we lead with is the community and the cause and then the corporation. And we need all three. We need all three. So 1 Peter 5 tells us that Jesus is the chief shepherd. We saw that. And that he, the chief shepherd, has, a, has instituted and appointed leaders for his church that are called elders. And what's their job? Their job is to shepherd and to oversee. Now, what are the dangers? What are the dangers of leadership and what are the dangers of followership in the church? Well, there's four in this passage. The, they're in verse 2 and 3 and then in verse 5. So look at verse, verse 2. It's, it's happening again. I, I'm telling you. I'm, telling you, I'm I'm an elder. Here we go. That's better. Okay, here we go. It's all the way. See, I wasn't even looking in the right place. Okay, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. Then verse 5, you younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what are the dangers? What are the dangers that face leaders and followers in the church? Well, the first danger is the danger of compulsion. This would be a helpful exercise for you to ask the Holy Spirit to help you notice how often you use the word, I have to, or I must. Just ask the Holy Spirit to help you in your week, see how many times you use the phrases, I have to, or I must. It will tell you something about the nature of your heart and the nature of a heart that's been touched by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of what Jesus has done for us is that we're more and more set free from have tos and must tos and able to embrace the life that's described, not in compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God, that we less and less say that in our life we're motivated by have-tos and must-tos, and we're more and more motivated by something that sounds a little bit more like, I cannot believe I get to do this. Now, how would the have-tos and the must-tos reveal itself in leadership? There are leaders, and even I, at times in my own life as a leader in the church, I have led in a way that was motivated by have-tos and must-tos. There were times in my life, particularly early in my ministry, when I said yes to planting a church in South Florida, where I toenailed my heart to leadership it became more important for me to be a leader than for me to be a follower of Jesus. And I had to lead in the church. And it almost destroyed me because there's only one chief shepherd. There's only one, and I'm not him. But what about followers? Listen, if you look at your Christian life and and you have to have a particular kind of leader to follow, if you look at the church and you say, I must have a particular style of leader or a particular gifting in my leaders. Oh, remember, Jesus is the chief shepherd of his people. Jesus is the chief shepherd of his church. This is the flock of God. And the, the gospel of grace moves in and helps us set aside the have-to's and the must-to's as leaders and as followers. Okay, the second is sordid gain. Greed. Greed. There's a line I mentioned that leaders in the church, we, we want to have uh, good organization, bylaws, structures, those things. They don't put me in charge of that. It would be, it'd be a terrible plan. But I'm thankful that we have this, this book. It's called The Book of Church Order. It's a great name. But what it, what it, it has a lot in it. But one of the things it says regarding calling a pastor to a local church work is that the compensation that the pastor receives and all of our ministry leaders receive is intended to free the pastor and free the ministry leader from, this is the phrase, worldly cares and aspirations. And so wise. Because our church government understands how easily it is for our hearts to become toenailed, if not to be compelled to do ministry for for any other reason, but to become toenailed to greed, to to the financial reward of being involved in ministry. Now, it may not be so much the case here, um, but there are places in the world where the best paid person in the village is the pastor that happens there are places like that it's not true here in fact I would tell you this is I'm being honest you're you're gonna say yo, you're crazy listen any one of you can find out exactly what I get paid any one of you can find out exactly what anybody on our staff gets paid But you can't find out by coming and asking me (laughs) because I don't know. I don't know how much I get paid. I mean, I could get you close. Okay. I'm not an idiot, but I'm not toenailed to it. I'm not, my heart isn't attached to it. Well, that's good. We'll decrease your salary until it becomes attached. No, that's the wrong application. It means that you're doing something right. That you actually have freed your pastor and your staff from worldly cares and aspirations. Okay. Greed. It's bad. We don't want to pursue it. But we could easily fall into it. What's the third one? The third one is power and control. Power and control. Do not... Peter says, Lord over those that you're in charge of, but prove to be examples. Don't lord over people. Don't try to control people. Does it happen? Has it happened? Yes. But in general, what we're called to do is to set our, have our hearts set free by Jesus so that we won't lord over, we won't control those who are in our charge, but instead prove to be examples to the flock. Power. There is a move in our culture that wants to attribute everything, every problem in our culture as being a result of the wrong use of power. And who wants to? There is a move in our culture that wants to remove all structures of power and authority from our culture. That's a horrible plan because the only thing worse than a bad government, the only thing worse than the wrong use of power, is for there to be no government, no power at all. And so let's allow the gospel to. Fix the power structures. Let's not throw out all the power structures and expect (laughs) expect sinful human nature to do anything good. Okay, so we've seen power, greed, and um, compulsion. What's the fourth one? The fourth one is in verse five. And it's pride. It's pride. Now, C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says this. I come to the, that part of the Christian morals where they differ most sharply with all other morals. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free. And which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people, except Christians, ever imagine they are guilty themselves. I have heard people admit that they are bad-tempered, or they cannot keep their heads about girls or drink, or even that they are cowards. I do not think I have ever heard anyone who is not a Christian accuse himself of this vice. And at the same time, I have very seldom met anyone who was not a Christian who showed the slightest mercy to it in others. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. And and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. And the virtue opposite to it in Christian morals is called humility. And if there's any characteristic of a Christ follower that should be more easy to demonstrate, it should be humility. It should be easy to find a humble man or a humble woman, but it's not, is it? It's hard to find a humble person. Because in our heart of hearts, there is a fallen nature of pride that always wants To think too highly of ourselves or too lowly of ourselves. And they're both pride. The person who thinks too highly of themselves, it's easier for us to see that they're a proud person. But the same is true of the person who thinks too lowly of themselves. The person who thinks too lowly of themselves, the person who thinks too highly, what do they have in common? They think of themselves. That's the heart of pride. And the gospel comes in and only the gospel can do this. The gospel makes it possible for us to think not less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. Now that's all I'm going to say about pride this week. But listen, if you know somebody that you really want to tell about pride, you invite them to come back next week because we're going to pick it up. And, and, and listen, it, maybe it'll be helpful for you too. And you can pray for me this week that it would help me. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. So we've seen the dangers. We've seen the need for leaders. There are leaders in the church. We've seen the dangers that leaders and followers face. Well, how do we we get the power to be the leaders and followers that we should be? We only get it through the gospel. We only get it through Jesus Christ. Now, what has Jesus Christ done? Jesus Christ is the chief shepherd of his church. But what did he do to attain or move to the position of chief shepherd? Jesus Christ moved to the position of chief shepherd of the church through suffering in our place. John 10, verse 11, says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. What will set us free from compulsion, the have-tos, the must-tos? What will set our hearts free from greed? What will set our heart free from the desire to, to plug into power, Instead of meekness, what will set our free hearts free from pride and enable us to be humble? Only Jesus Christ, only Jesus Christ is able to set the human heart free. Because only Jesus Christ, through his suffering, dealt with our real problem. And our real problem is in Isaiah 53, 6. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. The gospel is not how you can become a a better, more successful leader or you can become a, a better, more successful follower. The gospel is how Jesus Christ, as your chief shepherd, has done everything necessary to make you right with God. That when you were turning away from God, resisting his will, resisting his lordship, Christ Jesus took your place. And on the cross, he bore in himself your iniquity. What does that mean? It means that all of your sin was laid on Jesus Christ, and he paid the full and awful penalty that your sins deserve. He was crushed for your iniquity. He was pierced for your transgression. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And when you see that the chief shepherd of your souls does not simply say... You better be good. You better be humble. You better be nice. You better not be too rich or too poor. You better make sure you're motivated by the right things. No, your chief shepherd said, oh, you'll never get leadership right. You'll never get followership right. So I'm going to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. And he says, turn, turn from all the ways that you're turning away from me, turn back to me. Unplug your heart from compulsion and the have-tos. Unplug your heart from greed. Unplug your heart from a desire for power or control. Unplug your heart from pride. And plug your life into me. Receive life from me. Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, now you have returned to the chief. You have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Have you? Have you turned from your sin and have you received from Christ? Listen, it's not by human effort. It's an empty hand receiving everything that Jesus Christ has done. Have you received him? Have you turned from your sin and trusted in Christ alone for salvation as he's offered in the gospel? Won't you? Listen, if you're not a Christ follower, if you're not a Christian, trust in Christ. He's laid down his life for you. He's done everything for you. Trust in Him. Follow Him. Listen, if you sense that He's calling you this morning, come up after the service. I'd be glad to assist you in in turning from sin and trusting in Christ. Or you can do it right where you are. I'll give you the opportunity at the end of the message. Listen, if you are a Christ follower, then, then the life of a Christ follower is somebody who goes on turning from sin and trusting in Christ. We live in a world that will tell us all the ways that that we should platform ourselves, promote ourselves, put ourselves first. We live in a world that will tell us all sorts of have-tos and must-tos. This is the way that you'll make it. And a Christian is someone who listens to those voices and says, no, 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 no! I'm not going to plug my life into that. I'm going to plug my life into Christ. Who hears the, the voice of our good shepherd, Jesus, and goes on following him. And that's what I want for you. Follow the good shepherd. Follow Jesus because only jesus laid down his life for you only jesus gave everything for you so follow him dietrich bonhoeffer in his in his book life together describes it this way the desire we so often hear expressed today is for Episcopal figures, priestly men, authoritative personalities. It springs frequently enough from a spiritually sick need for the admiration of men, for the establishment of a visible human authority, because the genuine authority of service appears to be so unimpressive. There is nothing that so sharply contradicts such a desire as the New Testament itself in its description of an overseer. One finds there nothing whatsoever with respect to worldly charm and the brilliant attributes of a spiritual personality. The overseer is the simple, faithful man, sound in faith and life, who rightly discharges his duties to the church. His authority lies in the exercise of his ministry or service. In the man himself, there is nothing to admire. If you painted Jesus into, Je- into Jim Westell's picture of Damocles and Dionysus, what would Jesus do? If you painted Jesus in the painting, Jesus Christ on the cross took the sword, not of Dionysius, he took the sword of the wrath of God that was due us for our sin, and he took it straight into his heart so that he could take you all the way into his heart. He took the wrath of God for you so that he could have you forever. You come. You come to the chief shepherd of your souls. Only he lived for you and died for you and rose for you. Believe in him and trust in him. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for giving it all so that we could have it all thank you for emptying yourself of of everything so that you could now fill us with everything jesus you willingly gave your life for us jesus you were born in deep poverty you became poor So that we, through your poverty, might have everything we need so that we might become rich. Jesus, you were the most powerful. By your word, all things were made. And yet, for our sake, you made yourself nothing. Jesus, you were humility walking around the neighborhood. Jesus, I pray that we might look to you, that we might be filled with hope and faith and joy in believing, trusting, looking to you alone. And if you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ for salvation, won't you? Jesus, I admit that I've sinned against you in many ways. I've been going the wrong way. I've been seeking my own praise. I've been seeking my own agenda. I've been seeking my own glory. Jesus, I believe that you died on the cross and rose from the dead. Jesus, I trust you as savior and I want to follow you as Lord. You come into my life and and you help me become the person you made me to be. And oh, Jesus, how much the church and how much the world needs us to be the kind of place where we learn to follow the chief shepherd. He isn't taking applications for that position. He isn't delegating that responsibility. You alone, Jesus, are the chief shepherd of your church. Grant us, by your Holy Spirit, the ability to follow you. For I pray in your name. Amen.